are looking at this theme, as Anna said, in a story. And we've been looking at the book of Romans. And the subject, the theme in a story, is the title that we chose to uh, give to the book of Romans. And the reason we chose to look at the book of Romans is because so many Christians are scared of it. They're scared of it for all sorts of reasons. They're scared of it because it's dense, because there's endless words and arguments. They're complex. And many of those arguments we don't understand because they refer to cultures that we just, you know, are not part of us and haven't been a part of us for such a long time. And then there are other arguments that are in there and words that are in there that have been used by the church over the centuries to oppress various groups of people to oppress women, to oppress uh, LGBT people, for instance. And so this text, Romans, has come to speak judgment over many people. And even as we began, and I've said this before, to think about embarking on this task of looking at Romans over four weeks, this being the fourth week, part four, the last part of Romans, various people said to me, you can't do that. I really don't think that Paul's got anything relevant to say to us because if we dig into Romans, we're going to discover all sorts of judgmental passages and it's going to be terrible. So our task over these last four weeks has been to look at context and uh, at the risk of repeating myself overly, but I think it's worth repeating myself overly because otherwise we don't get it, to look at the wood, not the trees. And to say again that the way that so many Christians have studied the Bible, or actually not studied the Bible, but intended to study the Bible, is unhelpful. Because we spend endless amounts of time looking at individual words and individual verses. But the letters of Paul, in fact, the books in the library of the Bible, were never ever written to be read in that way. They were written to be read. When you write a letter to a friend or an email to a friend, you want them to read the whole thing, not just concentrate on your use of one word or one phrase. In fact, that's what so many of us are worried about in terms of sending emails, isn't it? That they're being misread. You see that band? You can't get rid of them. They're up there. That was the drum kit. <laughs> Highly intelligent drum kit. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> the Lord is with us. And he's speaking. It's just we can't understand what he was on about. <laughs> You've got to get the context of a thing. And we all know the problem in our everyday lives of people reading a sentence that we wrote or a phrase we wrote and jumping to conclusions and falling out with us or getting upset with us but they didn't see the big picture we the church have done that to the writings of Paul over a period of 2,000 years and we fashioned instruments of torture that we can then use on other people that we don't approve of so that's what we've been doing these last three weeks, looking at context. And uh, the context of Romans, Paul's longest letter to some friends of his, is of course, as we've said before, the fact that he's a man of law. He's the policer of Israel. He wants to keep Judaism in its traditional sense alive. And he's scared of it being diluted 
at the edges. He cares about the identity and the traditions of the Jewish people. But he gets knocked off his horse on a journey to persecute some Christians who he sees as a faction within Judaism they've got to be, got to be stamped on and got rid of. He gets knocked off his horse and he thinks his life is over. As I said before, he thinks he's 100% right about everything. And he realizes when he's knocked off his horse and he hears the voice of Jesus, and it's not a voice of condemnation, but it's a voice of love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. He realizes that he's been 100% wrong, not 100% right. And his life goes in a completely different direction. Richard Raw is a fantastic theologian, um, I recommend everything he's ever written to you. Some of you. Who's, who's read a book by Richard Raw? How many of you? Yeah, a, f a few of you. They're great, yeah? Do you agree? Um, you can get Richard Raw's um, writings on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was that a helpful comment? No, I think it probably was. <laughs> You can get Richard Raw's writings on a daily basis, actually, if you, go, if you just Google in Richard Raw, Raw spelt in that rather strange way, and um, he will send you, um, uh, he lives in the States, and he's a Benedictine monk, and uh, from his books you can get uh, daily readings, and they're really worth, think, you know, they're devotional, but they're challenging as well. Here's a quote from Richard. He says this, the amazing wonder of biblical revelation is that God is much different than we thought and much better than we feared. When I first read those words by Richard, I thought of Saul of Tarsus straight away, and then I thought of me. The truth about God is he's completely different. God is completely different than we thought and much better than we feared. I hope that over these last three weeks, if you've been around, and if you've not, you can get these talks uh, on um, uh, a podcast. But I hope that you've also reached the conclusion is that Paul's writing is much different than you thought and much better than you feared. In actual fact, it's writing filled with hope because Paul encounters a God who's much different than he thought and much, much better than he feared. So here's another quote from Richard Raw. Jesus knows there is a bigger arc to the story, one that reveals a God that is compassionate and inclusive. And that's what Paul, Saul of Tarsus, discovered. He fell off his horse on that day with a vision of a God who was there to wipe out all insurrection. Anybody who wasn't 100% right needed to die and it was Saul's job to ensure that that judgment fell on anyone who was slightly left or right of the truth. But he discovers in that incredible life-changing moment that God is a God of compassion and he's inclusive. And that message changes Paul's, Saul's life. He becomes Paul. 
the apostle to the Gentiles. Why is that phrase used in Romans? And why have you heard that phrase? It's used in lots of Paul's letters. He says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Because the word apostle means good news bringer. And Gentiles was a kind of term that covered everybody who wasn't included. I am a good news bringer to everyone who's thought that they were on the outside. That's who I am, he says. I used to be a bad news bringer to anybody who thought they could venture out or, or, or push the edges. But now I'm a good news bringer to everyone who believes that they're not included. That's who I am. So we've learned this principle, I hope, over the last few weeks. Changing your perception about God absolutely changes everything else. That's why being a Christian is political. By the way, next Sunday morning is going to be a fantastic uh, morning. Uh, Carly, who many of you know, is not here this morning, principal of our school, her uh, little son Freddie is going to be dedicated, which means the South Bank Choir are going to come and sing to us. And Johnny, who's over there, Johnny Reynolds, who... Uh, who's an MP, uh, I don't know if you know Johnny and Claire, but Johnny's, uh, John, there he is, he's, um, Johnny's a member of parliament, he's a Labour member of parliament, and Johnny's going to uh, talk about um, politics and Christianity, and politics and service, and why it's so important we engage in these big issues. Instead of saying, well, it's all too difficult, you know, Brexit and Trump and refugees and bans and Theresa May and holding hands and, do you know, you know, special relationships and all of that kind of stuff, you know, and Corbyn and all of that. It's all too difficult. I'm just a simple Christian. Actually, changing your perception of God absolutely changes everything else. You're not supposed to rust out. You're supposed to wear out. That's the point. And that's what Saul discovers, and I hope we've discovered that. Over these last um, three weeks, we've discovered that Paul had three main themes. These are two of them. We didn't deal with them systematically in this way, but there are three main themes to all Paul's theology. The first is what, uh, what N.T. Wright calls monotheism. And we've said that means one God. There's one God of everyone. You see, that's what Saul discovers. There's not a God for the Jews and something else for the Gentiles. It's not that God's deal is a Jewish deal for Jewish people and anybody who wants to become a Jew by getting circumcised and etc., etc. It's that God is the God of all peoples. That he called Abraham, the leader of the Jews, you know, the founder of the Jewish nation, in the first place, out simply that he might serve everyone. Abraham was chosen so he could serve everyone. There's one God and one God for all peoples, all peoples everywhere. For every American, for every Mexican, there is one God. One God. Monotheism. And then Paul realized, if there was one God, he gets knocked off his horse and he realizes there's one God for all people and this God is a God of grace. There's one people. And that's the theme that N.T. Wright in his thinking, he's a famous theologian, calls election. We are all elect, not one group of people, but all groups of people. <laughs> that thing is talking to God. All right, okay. Uh, one God, one people. 
And so Paul writes these words, and we've looked at them. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, everyone, because through Christ uh, Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life. Uh, the, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free. God's Spirit inhabits all those who choose to live their life in harmony with God and walk his way. It's God's Spirit who empowers us. There is no condemnation for any of us. And over the last three weeks, we've looked at um, some of these difficult things. We looked at um, chapter 1 and all those verses that have often been taken to be uh, a condemnation of, of gay people. And we looked at what they really mean in their context, etc. But Paul had three things. One God, one people, and then one hope, um, which N.T. Wright calls eschatology. But one hope is a bit of a problem. You see, if you believe that there's one God who's really good to everyone and wants to bless everyone, and there's one people who are all chosen by God because God loves the world, not a select group, that leaves you with a big problem. If you've got a good God with a good intention for all people, why is the world as it is? Why do we read all those headlines of exclusion why does stuff run wrong? And Paul reaches two conclusions. One is that the whole of the universe, the whole of creation is groaning and waiting for the coming of God's kingdom, which isn't here in its completion yet. It's a theological, it's a theological term. It's called inaugurated eschatology. For those of you who want to write that down and go away and study what inaugurated eschatology is, a simpler way of saying it is we live in a case of now and not yet. We haven't yet seen God's kingdom as it is. Jesus prays, says, tells us to pray. When you pray, pray, our Father, your kingdom come. One day your kingdom will come in its completeness. It's not come as it should be yet. So we're groaning and waiting and the whole of creation is groaning and waiting. Not just people, but the whole of creation is caught in this longing and this hope that God's kingdom will come. But the now and the not yet, in the now, the end breaks in. The end of history is what, the, what Paul taught. The end of history breaks into now. And in the now, every church Every little community that follows Christ should look like the end. Does that make sense? So what we are trying to do is act out what will come in its fullness eventually. Every act of kindness, every act of generosity, everything we do with our lives, wearing out, not rusting out, is a case of the now still longing for what is not yet. It's a little glimpse of what is to come. It's like switching on a tiny light in the darkness and another light and another light, but eventually we will see incompleteness. But the problem is twofold. If you've got one God and one people, you've got two problems. One is the world isn't the way it should be, and the other is we're not the way we should be. Steve Chalk isn't the way he should be. And that's what Paul addresses in the last four chapters of Romans. Actually, as Anna said quite rightly, you know, it's the first, uh, first 11 chapters of Romans are dense and hard to deal with. And as Anna said, I don't know if you caught it, when you get to chapter 12, it suddenly gets easy. 
and much more straightforward. So this isn't as complex as some of the stuff that we've done over the last few weeks. But another way of thinking about it is it gets a lot harder. Because the first 11 chapters of Paul are arguments. They're they're philosophical and theological and academic arguments as he squares his new view of the world as he's discovered God is grace and love with his old view of the world where he thought God was against us all. Now, he's got to square who he is with the world. And it sounds easier, but as we all know, it's a lot harder. So Romans chapter 12 and the four last chapters of Romans, Romans has got 16 chapters, they fit together as one block. You know, Paul's argued one thing, now he's moving on. Uh, As Ben read this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Live differently, holy and pleasing to God. Live that kind of life. This is your true and proper worship. That's what worship is. Singing can be worship. Praying can be worship. Cleaning the floor can be worship. Crossing the road can be worship. Buying someone a coffee can be worship. We worship with our lives. Your job is worship. Or perhaps you've never thought of your job as worship. As I always say, Begin thinking of your job as worship or change your job for one that you can think of as worship. Serving God where you are. Holy and pleasing to God. This is our true and proper worship that we live our lives like this. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember we talked on weeks one and two about the pattern of this world. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Remember Paul's not forgotten what he's just written The pattern of this work, we talked about Paul and Judaism and what was wrong with Judaism that it excluded most people. We talked about the Roman Empire and how it used and abused the serfs and the slaves and and the have-nots and it put them down, used them as things. And Paul's saying, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, the way that everybody else is, you know, keeping themselves up, putting others down, leaving others out. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what does that mean? Here's a logo, you see that every week as you come in here. Oasis Church Waterloo. It's our logo, it's our brand, isn't it? We stick it on screens, we write it on walls, we put it on leaflets. It's a brand. It's a logo. We use the word logo and brand in a kind of muddled up way. You wonder, why have I just skipped from Romans chapter 12 to Oasis Church Waterloo because that's what Paul's really talking about. That connection. He's never heard of Oasis Church Waterloo, by the way, of course. But he's talking to us. He's talking to all Christians. That's our logo. Here's some other logos. You know all these logos. Google, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Coca-Cola, Yahoo, etc. MasterCard, Apple's in there, Amazon, etc. They're all what we call brands. They're not brands, actually. They're logos. There's a big confusion. Um, uh, There's lots of people who talk about branding, and for my money, most of them, I always think, I don't think they've got it, but they earn a lot of money through talking about it anyway. And um, here is um, is a little um, thing I downloaded off Google, which proves to me that most people who talk about brands don't know what they're talking about, but here it is. You've seen one of those word charts before. This one was one of the first ones I came across on Google when I searched. Brand. What is brand? 
brand is a logo, it's about advertising, it's about marketing, it's about sales, it's about business, it's a name, it's graphics, it's colours, it's a tagline, it's design, it's a symbol, it creates awareness, etc., etc. That's what brand is. Actually, the brand is always you. The brand is us. The logo that says Oasis Church Waterloo stands for who we are. When some people see the, the logo Oasis Church Waterloo, their hearts will thrill because they've discovered kindness from us. We are the people. When other people see that logo, they might walk the other way because they came here and they weren't welcomed because they were rejected, because they didn't feel included. The brand, in other words, is always in the end us, not the logo. Let me prove that to you. Here is a logo. This logo used to stand for great engineering, reliability, trustworthiness, Get one of these and it won't break down. For anybody listening <laughs> afterwards, it's a Volkswagen logo. I searched for Volkswagen on the interweb and this is the first um, graphic that came up, uh, 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 image that came up. I've actually chopped a bit off this so the next slide doesn't add something there's something that's in this logo that I just chopped out of this picture because the first the first image that came up for Volkswagen when I typed in Volkswagen actually looked like this because of this I don't know if you can see that but um, it's a YouGov survey and it's about perception. And this is 2015, not 2016. In August 2000, August 22nd, 2015, in the US, Volkswagen's brand was plus 10. It mattered. Uh, uh, um, in the UK, it was plus three. We, you know, uh, we love Volkswagen, Volkswagen, reliable, trustworthy, etc., etc. And then the truth came out about how they fixed the computers on their... Uh, cars to get through the admissions test and between August the 22nd and September the 23rd look what happened it collapsed perception actually the perception collapsed but so did the share price lost five billion dollars um, in a week when people look at this logo what do they think about because the logo always represents the reality, who we are. And that's what Paul's talking about in the last four chapters of Romans. He's saying, therefore, don't be conformed to this world. Live a different way. Be the kind of people who are a living demonstration of the grace of God that's for all people. If there's one God, if there's one people, if there's one hope, it should all be wrapped up in who you are and the way you live day by day. Which is why pretty well every week I've shown you this book. And I'd like to talk about it in a little more depth now. And I said this each week, but I wanted to drip feed it in. This is the heart of Romans, actually. 
Our lives are a tale of two stories. Two stories, the first being about all the stuff that happens to us, the stuff that happens to you, the stuff that's happened to you this this morning, you got a bus, you came along, you found the tube station wasn't open, you, uh, you, you got a coffee, you bumped into somebody, you got up late, the alarm didn't go, I don't know what it is, but it's the story of your life and the story of this week and the business meetings you've had or not and how things have gone and with, at work and at home and whether your son or daughter's been sick or not and all of those things. That's the story about what happens to you. But our lives are the tale of two stories. And the second story is our inner story. That's why we called this series Inner Story, and it reaches conclusion this morning. Our inner story. Paul or Saul had an inner story, and his inner story dictated the way in which he saw the whole world. Because our inner story always does dictate the way in which we see the world. And I'd like you to ask yourself over these next few minutes, what is your inner story? What's your inner story? And how does it shape, color, impact the way that you see the world and everybody in it and every day? On another Sunday, I told the story, didn't I, of, the, of the, my train um, rides to Liverpool. Um, if you, I'm not going to tell it again, so if you didn't hear it, um, listen, to, listen to it. But it was simply about how I met two people on a train on the way to Liverpool who encountered the world, their rides to Liverpool on a train on Sunday night, in an entirely different way. One felt rejected by everyone, and the other felt real acceptance. But it was who they, I watched it, up played out. It was who they were and how they embraced others or not that resulted in the way they saw the world and the way they encountered the world. Our inner story is unseen, often unrecognized even by us because we don't like looking at it. The stuff that's happened to us and shaped us and the rejections that we felt, we move away from those, we bury those. Our inner story is unseen, it's often unrecognized, <laughs> it's normally untold. But our inner story is the story that controls our lives. The inner, Paul's inner story, Saul's inner story, was controlling his life. Your inner story convinces you of what sort of person you are. And it tells you what you can and cannot achieve in life. It, besides anything else, creates a glass ceiling in your life that you can't break through. It impacts who you are to the core. And the way we live is as the result of that inner story. For those who haven't been here on, on other weeks, I, I've, I've talked about how our inner story is that little inner monologue we have. You know, the voice inside your head every morning, the voice that talks to you all the time as you walk in here uh, later at lunch, the little voice that's telling you things about yourself that you sometimes argue with. That's your inner story, your inner voice. And that's what shapes who you are, who I am. Your inner story controls your life, but it can also transform your life. And that's seen in the story of Paul and the story of Romans, and it is the heart of Paul's message. Summing it up, it is. There's one God, we're one people, and there's one hope. There's a different way of living and being. Like I said, you are your inner storyteller. 
Some of us are trapped in a negative inner story, but all of us can improve our inner story. And the message of Romans is this, through the work of God's spirit, you, working with God, can edit and change your inner story. But the challenge is, and this is where we've left it each week, but first you have to acknowledge it. Back to Richard Raw. A common temptation is to use belonging to the right group and practicing its rituals as a substitute for encounter with the divine. I go to church, I do church on a Sunday morning, I'm a Christian, I've got a Bible. You know, I, I join in with the songs, I know the songs. I've got Christian friends, I am a Christian. A common temptation is to use belonging to the right group and practicing its rituals as a substitute for encounter with the divine. But it's only an encounter with the divine that changes our inner story. Saul's inner story was changed by his encounter with Jesus and he never saw anything the same way again. So how do you create space in your life for an encounter with the divine? Do you create space in your life for an encounter with the divine? Or do you rock up at church and use the opportunity to sit there and think through all the things you've got to do in the week and answer a few emails on your phone and all that kind of stuff? Do you know, whatever it is, or you know, check the early football scores towards the end of the service, I don't know what it might be. But all those things rob you of worshipping and then the singing of the songs just becomes singing songs rather than worship. But they rob you of what you most need, an encounter with the divine. Because it's only through inner change that outer change and outer impact becomes genuine, isn't it? Genuine. So I'd like to ask you um, some questions. I've got two two little statements here. I'm the sort of person who, I'd like you to think about this by yourself, a chance to reflect. And that means that I. What do I mean by that? Here's some. I'm the sort of person who has been hurt in the past. I've been rejected by people in the past. When I was a kid, I was always told I was the short one or the uh, fat one or the thick one or the, you know, whatever. I've been rejected. In my adult life, I've been asked to leave things. I've not been wanted. I'm the sort of person who that kind of stuff has happened to. And this means that I, this means that I'm defensive. This means that I find it hard to trust. This means that I'm overly negative. This means that I find it hard to accept others. Or, I'm the sort of person who grew up in a home where there wasn't any money. That actually happened to me, do you know? I grew up in a home where we had no money. My parents never had a bank account. And this means that I find it hard to be generous because we had to scratch out a living for everything we possibly had and dressed in second-hand clothes, etc., etc. And it means that it's hard for me to adapt to a world where 
I don't believe that you've got to hang on to everything because if you don't hang on to everything, you might not have anything to eat tomorrow. So I have to learn about my inner story and my past and I have to work hard to be generous, to compensate for it. I had a friend for many years whose name was Simon. He died, sadly, two or three years back. But Simon was a fantastic organizer. He worked for Oasis for many years. I worked closely with him. And he used to organize everything. He had lists for everything. He was brilliant. And uh, I remember saying to Simon on more than one occasion, you're fantastic at organization. And he used to say, no, I'm not. I'm useless. I'm absolutely useless. I can't organize anything. And I realized that what actually happened to him is he'd always been told that he couldn't organize. So actually, he'd overcompensated for that and he'd become a brilliant organizer simply because he thought he was a bad one. We're always reacting and responding to our inner story. I'm the sort of person who used to tell people about the way I feel and I was laughed at so I find it very hard to be open. I'm the sort of person who grew up in a home where my parents never talked about their feelings. Therefore, I find it very hard to talk about my feelings and that becomes a barrier in my relationships. I'm the sort of person who, um, who because of lack of openness, finds it hard to wear my heart on my sleeve and makes me overcautious and that holds me back in the relationships I'm in at the moment. I could go on and on. You get the point. In what ways has your inner story shaped who you are? I'm the sort of person who, and that means that I. I've got a friend whose parents were always angry with him. He's always angry with everyone else. But the only person he's really angry with is him because he still, in his late 50s, carries around the curse of believing that he never mattered. He's angry with his own failure to live up to some imaginary standard that his parents thrust on him. And instead of facing his internal anger, and he sometimes does, he just take, he's angry with everyone. Think for a moment in silence about these two phrases and their application to you. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the story of Jesus and the power of God's spirit in your life. Be transformed. Allow God to touch, to highlight all of those places that you've kept in the shadows, all of those bits of your inner story that you can't bear to mention, the rejection because of your color, 
or your creed or your sexuality. The slamming of the door, the closing of the door on things that you wanted to achieve, your dreams, the being told no to, the living in a world of judgment, the feeling that God is not half as good as you hoped. Explore with Paul the new world of grace that he discovered. And let that grace sink down on you at this moment. And so you see, as we go on, Paul says this. These are all in the words that Ben read. Paul says this. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Make this your inner story. It'll be a wrestling match. But hate what is evil and cling to what is good and search for what is good in others' lives. Be devoted to one another in love. It's a struggle. Work at it. Honour one another above yourselves. That's a hard thing to do. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be hope, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Tough thing to do. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn instead of just passing them by and saying sorry. Live in harmony with other people. Cross that bridge. Build that bridge, not that wall. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's all Paul's advice in the passage we just read. I mean, how relevant is all this stuff? He's challenging our inner story. He's asking us to move on. I'm the kind of person who's shy. And because I'm shy, I sit here on a Sunday morning, and then if people don't come and talk to me, I feel, huh, what kind of church is this? No one comes to talk to me. We're all shy. Cross the room. Start the conversation later. Over a coffee, don't hang out just with your friends, although it's great to hang out with your friends. Engage another person. If no one's spoken to you, march up to someone. Introduce yourself. I'm the sort of person who's shy, so therefore I always feel left out. I don't include other people that in the end I end up resenting the fact they don't include me. This new message, the message, the salvation message of Jesus radically challenges our stories. And so in Romans 13, Paul says, whoever loves others has fulfilled the whole law. That's what he's worked out. To start with, he used to think all the laws mattered. You know, he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's crusading and he's squashing. But here's where he comes to. In view of all those dense arguments I made in the early chapters where I was wrestling through what the, re what the death and resurrection of Jesus meant for the new way in which I see the whole world, in view of this new arc of inclusion and hope that Jesus has brought to my life, I've worked this out, he says, 
Whoever loves others has fulfilled the whole law, the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not cover. And whatever other commandments there are, you know, Paul's saying, oh, there's tons of them. Whatever commandments there are in the Old Testament, as we understand it, the Jewish Bible, whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Which is why in the next few weeks, I've written about this on the front of the news sheet, we're starting that series, two weeks' time, called Emoji. And we're going to look at worry and regret and some of those things. And we're going to look at Oasis Nine Habits built on Paul's fruit of the Spirit. These are Paul's nine habits. Uh, he writes about them in Galatians, but he hints at them in Romans. He tells us to be compassionate and patient and humble and joyful and honest and hopeful and considerate and forgiving and self-controlled. And we're going to begin looking at those again together. And go, oh, I know about that stuff. You see, the point is, at one level it's easy, and we love a big theological debate about something. But the Bible isn't about a big theological debate. It's about my life being conformed so I live like Christ. Here's a picture of a dad and his son and a bike. All pretty obvious, you can see that. You see, when you learn to ride a bike... It's tough. You've got to learn to pedal and steer and hold the handlebars and perch on that little seat and look where you're going and hold the brakes and change gears and balance all at the same time. It's no good becoming an expert steerer if you can't balance. I'm really good with the pedals, just no good with the brakes. The point is, until you can do all of those things together, you can't ride a bike. That's what Paul's talking about. This is the picture of Jesus and what I've discovered, he said. Become this person, love. The way we've often expressed it is like this. We all like to live life in the foliage, the green foliage. We like to have a fun time. Stuff really stays fun if you're rooted. A lot of people's tragedies, a lot of tragedy in people's lives is the outworking of bad rooting. Does that make sense? Stuff breaks down, stuff goes wrong, relationships fall apart, people get into all sorts of difficult scrapes because they weren't rooted in a good place to start with. So we all want to live in the foliage of life and forget about rooting and forget about anything serious until it goes wrong. It's like the guy who goes to see the doctor and he's got lung cancer and he's been smoking 60 cigarettes a day for the last 60 years. And he says, doctor, what can you do for me? The answer is nothing. But he wants a miracle cure that's going to overcome the neglect of 60 years. Unless we get rooted in the story of Jesus and allow God's spirit to work on us and become those who love and are outgoing, and that list of things that Paul's just reminded of us that I've read, we inherit something we don't want to inherit. Our behavior grows out of our roots. Miles Davis said this, I threw this in for 
all jazz fans. I'm looking at Joey over there particularly, but it applies to everyone. Miles Davis, great jazz trumpeter. Miles said this, it's not the notes you play, it's the ones you don't play. Do you see? As you become conformed to Jesus, Miles was talking about jazz music, but <laughs> it's the same principle. As you play jazz in life, with your life, it's the notes you don't play because you know they don't fit. And you slowly become conformed. I myself, says Paul in Romans 15, Romans 16 is just him saying goodbye to everyone and hello, you know, say, you know, tell these people I'm their friend, say hello to them, say hi to them, all of that. So Romans 15 is where he sums up his whole theology. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. See, he's not judging them. You're full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another, be accountable to one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind, them, uh, to remind you of them again. People don't like churches that tell them how to spend their money, behave, how to be hospitable, who to invite round. Because religion is something we do. Actually, we've got to be bold. Because the point of Romans is this. Stick to a story long enough and the story sticks to you. Fantastic little um, book, Nothing on Earth. Great quote, isn't it? And that's what Paul is saying. Stick to a story long enough and this story is going to stick to you and you will naturally work it out day by day, week by week. That's what we're called to. This, in Anna's words earlier, is the great reversal. God bless you.